0: You would open up your Bibles if you brought one, or use a Pew Bible, or look in your bulletin um, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be wrapping up the chapter looking at verses 31 through um, 39. And in doing so, we're going to look at some of the most loveliest words in all the Bible words that speak of the inseparable love of God. You know, some people presume upon God's love and take it for granted while others doubt God's love and feel as if he is distant but still others know God's love and live with great confidence daily which one are you Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39 what shall we say to these things nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an encouraging word. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, I... Um, Thank you for this amazing word to us. Like a dad speaking to a young child to to comfort him or her, your words to us this morning comfort us. They they, they help take away our fears and our insecurities, and they help us to live the life that you've called us to live. We pray right now that your spirit would inflame in our hearts an understanding and in our minds an ability to comprehend the best of our ability what you're talking about here. May Paul's words be pressed deep into us, that we may live them out, we pray. Amen. Well, it's the last season of American Idol, and so my family have been kind of somewhat faithfully watching it. And and a few weeks ago, we were watching, and uh, it's interesting, all the different contestants that they have. And Leslie pointed out something about one of the contestants. She she said, uh, said, do you notice how insecure she seems? And then I looked at it, and Leslie's like, look how she doesn't even look at people in the eyes when they talk to her, or she talks to them. She kept her head down, and, and she had a, her hair was uh, half over her face, as if she was kind of hiding behind her, her hair. And, um, but the thing was, I mean, she was a pretty girl, and she had a wonderful voice. <laughs> and it left us wondering, why, why does she feel so insecure? Are you an insecure person? Don't be quick to deny it. Even the most confident person can suffer from insecurity. See, insecurity and hope are intertwined. If, if your, if your hope is that that girl or that guy, um, will be the one, and, and yet you find yourself, uh, two days after the last date and the person still hasn't contacted you or kept in touch, do you, will you not at that point feel a sense of insecurity? If your hope is in financial security, well, guess what? You will suffer insecurity when your investments don't go well. People will say to you, is there something wrong? And you'll just, oh, no, no, everything's fine. But deep down, you know, it's, it was a bad day in the market. I just don't want you to know these things bother me. If your hope is in career advancement, will you not feel defeated and insecure if you get laid off? Or if you find you're not on the fast track up the corporate ladder? Now, the sermon isn't about insecurity, but it addresses it. Our sermon today is titled, The Inseparable Love of God. And in our passage, it's as if Paul wants to grab us and shake us and get some sense in us. What is he trying to say? Well, if we could but understand the magnitude of God's love towards us, it would not only eradicate any insecurity that we have uh, between us and him, but every other insecurity in life would be laid to rest too. See, there's a great confidence that God wants his children to have. It's a confidence of the first order. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a confidence that God gives us that filters down into every other area of our life. See, until you experience the confidence that comes to us by virtue of the inseparable love of God, you will always be insecure in some sort of area in your life. How so? the good things on earth to which we cling tightly to, um, there's nothing that we cling to that time itself won't wring from our hands, right? And so insecurity arises out of that. But check this out. If God can give you an overarching security that cannot be taken away, then that changes everything, doesn't it? Paul's trying to get this truth across to that early church in Rome. No doubt they were experiencing insecurities in life The Christians in Rome were being pressed in on all sides. One commentator said this. He said, the Romans regarded the Christians as cheap and common victims. They were routinely mocked and ridiculed by the populace of Rome. And guess what? Within about 10 years, Nero is going to go on a rampage. Uh, and he is he's going to brutalize the Christians in Rome. He's going to start hundreds of years of persecutions against Christians in Rome. So Paul wants his readers to know this important truth. The love of God produces in us an invincible confidence for all of life's struggles. How so? Well, Paul. you see, notice in the text, Paul bombards us with question after question. We're going to take each one in stride. And in doing so, we're going to see two important truths about the the inseparable love of God. First, we're going to see that it's personal. Next, we're going to see that it is powerful. Paul begins by saying, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul here isn't questioning whether God is for us or not. Paul isn't saying, well, I'm not sure if God is for us, but if he is, who could be against us? No, the word if here carries the meaning of the word since. Since God is for us, who on earth could be against us? To which you say, really, Paul? There's a lot against me. My past haunts me. Uh, the world is against me. It presses in on me. I try to be strong. I try to be a better me. But the brutal truth is I feel pressed in upon. There's a woman in my Christian Explored class um, who really wonderfully summarized what this can look like. She said, and I'm paraphrasing her, she's, she she's achieved a lot in her life as a woman in, in many different ways. And, and um, she said, you know, she works hard and she ach- achieves goals uh, only to realize that there's more goals in the distance pressing in on her. It's like they keep coming like a, a wave upon, upon her life. It's relentless. The closer you get, it seems to be the further you are away. Do you experience that? I think it's because the pressure and the pace of modern human life can put us in a rhythm where we feel that life itself is against us. So what is Paul saying? Paul is not saying that life doesn't press in upon us. No, Paul is telling us wonderful news. In the midst of the pressure, though life is pressing in on you, God is for us. Did you see that there? That's the gospel. And four short little words, tiny little words, you know, three-letter word, a two-letter word, right? God is for us. What's the proper conclusion after reading the book of Romans up to this point? Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Romans chapter 8, what do we see there? The these things that God has set you free in Christ Jesus, that he's you with his Holy Spirit, that God has adopted you into his family, that he calls you son or daughter, that he delights in you, that you regularly please God. And when you don't, he loves you nonetheless. And he's promised today, he's going to redeem and restore the entire universe. And because you are his child, he's going to take you to that day. He's predestined it for you. So what shall we say to these things? God is for us. Take a moment to personalize Paul's words. We could could put down, instead of us, we can put down, God is for Grace Presbyterian Church. God is for us. We need to know this as a church. But also, you could put your own name in there. I could very easily insert, God is for Mark Middlecoffin. Oh, that I would just really believe that. Write that down yourself, not in the Pew Bible, but in your own Bible, if you brought one, or, or or in the bulletin. God is for, and then put your name in there. Christian, make no mistake, God is for you. Don't let the fact that you experience hardship and struggle and defeat and disappointment cloud your understanding that God is for you. Paul asked another question meant to encourage our faith. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, if God has given you the greatest gift on all the earth, then why on earth would you ever think that God would be stingy towards you in the lesser things? Imagine if I came home one day and gathered the family around and I announced to them that I'm taking them all on a trip to Hawaii and we're leaving in 10 days. Everyone gets up and is jumping around, all excited. They can't believe it except for one daughter. And she says, Dad, I don't think I can go. I don't have money for souvenirs. Now, assuming I'm not a cruel dad... I don't think I am. Uh, What's wrong with my daughter's thinking? How foolish for her to think that I've done the greater thing of of buying the plane ticket, getting the hotel room, and hopefully renting a car, uh, that that I wouldn't also provide for her a few dollars for for a hula skirt and some coconut sunglasses. (laughs) Paul is using similar logic here, he's using the argument from greater to lesser. There's no greater love. There's no greater expression of love that you can see in the entire universe than what Paul is referring to here. God gave his son for us. If God did not withhold his own son, then you can be sure he will not withhold anything from us. But we can think otherwise, can't we? Oh, we know in the back of our head, yeah, yeah, God gave his son for me and all that and... uh, I guess he loves me, but then the trials of life hit. And it's if, like if there were a anxiety meter above our heads, it would be like redlining, you know? Uh, we're so worried about the things in life. Paul wants his readers in Rome to consider his argument. God is personally committed to you. You should know this, Christian, because at the center of your relationship between you and God the Father is Jesus the Son. What happened on the cross? We see that God is personally committed to you and to me. Whenever you have doubts about God's love towards you, look to the cross. There you will see what God has done. He gave up his own son for us. So how could we ever feel as if God would abandon us? On the cross, God abandoned His own Son, so that you and I will never have to experience the abandonment of God. God has pledged His love towards you. It's a very costly love. I think some of you here might need to hear this this morning. Perhaps you know you're 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 bordering on being ticked at God, right? Things haven't gone well for you lately. Life has passed you by. You started to wonder perhaps if God himself is against you. So now perhaps you're taking matters into your own hands. You're, you're trying to, your best to piece together the best life for you apart from really trusting in God. And guess what? On your best days, well, yeah, you feel better. But on your worst days, isn't it true? You have sleepless nights. The anxiety keeps you awake. Paul's words for you is, are simple. Look to the cross. Measure God's love for you there. Soak it in. And know this that if God has loved you so greatly, then surely He will graciously love you in all things and in all circumstances. Paul builds upon God's personal commitment to you in the next question he asks. It's actually two questions. Look at verses 33 and 34. Here Paul uses courtroom language. Who shall bring any charge against God elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul's point is that if Christ has died for sinners so that we're now righteous in God's sight, then who is left that could possibly condemn us you know much insecurity in the world stems from feelings of guilt and shame and inadequacy and the world's solution often at least in the west the world's solution is to act as if true guilt and shame are to be avoided just love yourself no matter what isn't that the advice many people give the problem with that approach is it's dishonest and it's ineffective. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. It just, it just feeds our narcissistic tendencies. It forms a false security. It's like drinking a shot of denial and then chasing it, chasing it with, with a glass of, of positive thinking. Last night at the at the at the international dinner, I was talking with a friend of mine. He's totally into cars and reminiscing about the old cars we had back in high school and stuff. And he's telling me about his '77 uh, Pontiac Trans Am. Yeah. It was black, yeah. You know, think uh, uh, smoking the Bandit, right? Beautiful car. And he said one day someone plowed into him and took out the rear quarter panel and just damaged it. He could still run, what have you. So, and he got insurance money. And what did he do with the insurance money? He didn't fix the obvious problem instead he spent the money on new suspension parts so his car could go faster and handle better this approach to life of just uh, just saying hey just love yourself no matter what it's similar to that it's saying you know I'm going to ignore the, the busted quarter panel I'm going to ignore the fact that I gossip that I'm bitter that I'm jealous when other people succeed I'm going to ignore all that um, and, uh, and I'm gonna, I'm just going to uh, speak you know positive thoughts that allow me to go faster through life right it's similar to that in that regards if you buy into this form of self-esteem building let me ask you this how's it working for you isn't it true that when you find yourself feeling insecure and you give yourself a self-love pep talk that in the end if you're honest isn't this insecurity still there Oh, you might have pushed it off a day or two or a week or so, but it's still there. Why is that? Because your quarter panel really does have a dent in it. (laughs) Right? You really do have things in your life that you need to address. You can't just deny it. You just can't do an end around it. You have real guilt and real shame that cannot simply be denied or disregarded. But that is why Paul's words to us are such good news. See, there is a security that comes... Not from drinking a shot of denial and chasing it with positive thinking. nor it's the security that comes from knowing that in Christ, all of my reasons for insecurity has been taken away. Paul writes, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's as if Paul is taunting. Who? All right, who? Who can bring any charge, right? The answer is no one. See, if God has justified you, that is, if God has placed on Christ all of your guilt and shame and sin, and he's taken it away, then you truly no longer have guilt or shame in the presence of the one whose opinion matters most, God Almighty. And if you're so loved by God that he's chosen to love you this way, then you can start seeing yourself in a whole new way. No longer must you deny your guilt and shame. Far from it. God has lovingly taken it away. And so check this out. If you're in Christ, that is, if your life is hidden in him, you trust in him for all this, um, And then here's the deal. The highest court has ruled its verdict in your favor. There is no supreme court above God that can overturn God's verdict for you. So Paul's question is a good one. Who is to condemn? And yet there's a lot of condemning going around. Even in the church. Perhaps you're here today and you, you're coming in and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're feeling insecure and you're, you look around and uh, you're like, wow, all the people here, they just seem to have it all squared away. They're all good, law-abiding Christians. If they only knew me, they, they, would, they would ridicule. They would scorn me. If they only knew the things that I've done or the, or the way I've acted... know this, if Christ is your Savior, there's no condemnation for you. For Jesus has taken your condemnation to the grave. And Jesus rose from the dead to free you from condemnation. It's as if Paul is saying, if if we're to be condemned, then it's over Christ's dead body. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic. But Paul wants us to know something more in fact when you're feeling condemned when you're feeling inadequate when you're feeling as if you could never be the good christian you know you should be he says jesus is at the right hand of the father interceding for you that's what it says in verse 34 christ who's at the right hand of god who is interceding for us now what does this interceding look like you know um you ever try to think of that, like, what is it? What is Jesus really doing up there? Right. You know, uh, here's what Jesus is not doing as he's interceding for Mark Middlecoff. It's not as if Jesus is up there um, talking to God, the father uh, who has uh, some memory problems <laughs> like, no, dad, no, no. That's Mark Middlecoff. Remember him? 1995, September, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what are you doing to him? You know, cut him some slack. He's one of ours, right? You think that's what Jesus is doing when he's interceding? No. <laughs> you know, like God's going, oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. No, that's not what he's doing. I try to picture it this way. Remember, what is God's intention for you? you? If you're in Christ, your trajectory is where? To be like Christ one day in a renewed um, universe, heaven on earth, right? Body and, and spirit. Spirit. Um, as Christ's body is perfect and glorious, as, as he is sinless perfection, and his nature is full of joy and delight, that's where God is taking you. So, so picture this. When Jesus is interceding for Mark Middlecoff, he's right by his father's throne, and it's as if he's up there saying, Father, check this out. That one there, Mark Middlecoff, we're making him like me. He's going to be like me someday. Is't that awesome? And God the Father's rejoicing and all the angels in heaven are rejoicing over God's grace towards Mark Middlecoff. Understand this: your heavenly Father's heart is filled with joy when Jesus intercedes for you. So next time you find yourself feeling defeated. Because of those pernicious sins that seem to keep tripping you up. Next time you are quick to be listening to Satan's condemnation of you, picture Christ in heaven, joyfully proclaiming to all that one day you will be like him. That's the first section, verses 31 through 34. Here we learn that if your life is in Christ, God is what? For you. God's love for you is personal. The most powerful being in the universe, uh, who is also the most loving being in the universe, has committed himself to you personally. Now, we need to press that deep into our brains, don't we? It's as if we kind of need cargo netting to hold it down, right? Do whatever it takes. But remember that God is for you. But what, is a good, what good is a commitment if it cannot be backed up, right? Right? The remaining verses of chapter 8 tell us that not only is God's love for you personal, it's also powerful. Nothing in heaven on earth can separate you from God's love, nor his loving intentions towards you. That's what the last question brings to bear. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know, in this life, we are separated from a lot of things that give us security In the financial crisis of 2008, many of you were separated from your jobs or your 401Ks or your homes. Every year, cancer separates husband from wife, mother from children, brothers from sisters. If we know one thing for certain in life is that there's nothing for certain in life. We're always being separated from our good things. So we're naturally anxious and insecure. Now, with that in light... Paul has just told us the most amazing good news or the most important, valuable gift you could ever receive has been given to you. And the natural reaction is to think, oh boy, what's on the horizon? Is there anything coming that could separate, from me, separate me from this gift? Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And then he lists a, a list of traumatic events that befell the early Christians in Paul's day, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword. And then in verse 38 and on, he lists out other cataclysmic realities that threaten to separate us from the love of God. Paul says with certainty, he says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, or heights, or depths, or anything else in all of creation, will what? Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Picture this in your mind. Picture each one of those things Paul mentions uh, and, and in a in a wooden cart in front of Paul. And they're all laid out there. So you've got a, a cart full of tribulation, a cart full of distress, a cart full of persecution and death and all kinds of other threats from within creation. You get the point, right? And, um, picture an animated Paul. Whenever he says one of these things, he like kicks it over or pushes it over. And so he says, uh, he says, shall distress? No. And he knocks it over. Shall persecutions? No. And he just pushes this over. Is this helpful? I don't know. It was helpful. <laughs> It was helpful for me when I was thinking about it, all right? It gets a little awkward when the cart's full of nakedness. (laughs) All right. Um, (laughs) Understand this. Nakedness in Paul's day, in ancient Rome, um, poverty was such an issue that people's clothes would wear out and become threadbare, and nakedness was a, a real issue. People didn't have money even... For clothes. So, all that aside, Paul is is emphatically pushing these things over. He's toppling them all. He's saying there's nothing. Christian, there is nothing that can separate you from God's love for you. Nothing. Well, you don't know, preacher. I've done some. No, no, nothing on the cross. I still have these thoughts. No, nothing. (laughs) Well, I'm going to die someday. Don't worry about it. He's risen, so will you. Paul is adamantly saying that none of these harsh realities or powerful forces can separate us from the love of Christ. problem is, in our minds, when we suffer tribulation and distress and all sorts of hardships, the problem is we become insecure. We can think, maybe God doesn't love me after all. After all, if he did love me, I surely wouldn't be going through what I'm going through right now. You've had these thoughts, haven't you? It's not just me. <laughs> Guess what? Paul is telling us, get over it. People have, God's people have felt this way for millennia. That's why he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22 and verse 36. See what he says there. He says, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The words in the original Psalm reflect the perplexity Uh, of God's people in the face of inexplicable suffering. Paul quotes it. Why? To rub people's noses in it? No. So that we would recognize that God's people have always been pressed in upon by the sinful world around us. That God's people have always been called to a faith-filled devotion in God no matter our circumstances. And additionally, Paul tells us something profound Instead of being victims, Christians are to be victors. You heard that right. Christian. God has given you everything you need to succeed in the midst of suffering. Look at verse 37. No, says Paul, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the original Greek, the words more than conquerors, it's three words in our English, but it's just one word in the Greek. Paul made it up. He combined two words. Um, Hyper and, and Nicomen, and together it's super conquerors, is really what you could translate that. In all things, the Christian is a super conqueror. So here's what Paul wants to get into our little trembling skulls. Paul wants us to understand that victory takes place in the midst of suffering, not apart from it. Every great accomplishment for Christ and for his kingdom came through trial and tribulation and suffering. Christian, Christ is not calling you to mediocrity. He's not calling you to paralysis. He is calling you to greatness. Once again, the Psalm For your sake, we're being killed all day long. Who's the you're here? It's God. The people are singing. For your sake, God, we offer our lives no matter the cost. (laughs) It's for your glory, God, that we regard ourselves as sheep being led to the slaughter. Talk about perspective, huh? (laughs) Paul is saying to the church in Rome and us, he's saying, get over it. Tribulation is nothing new for God's people. In fact, there is great glory and victory in tribulation. God has determined to strengthen us and provide the inner resources that enable us to persevere in victory. Christ in us gives us the capacity to be super conquerors. In verse 37, Paul writes that we are super conquerors through him who loved us. It's where our strength resides. It's not in you mustering up some, you know, positive thinking. No, this is the power of Christ in you. Look again at verse 35. Paul doesn't ask this. Paul doesn't ask what shall separate Christ from our love as if we're the ones hanging on to him. What does he say? No, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus is powerfully holding on to us. Christian, let this sink in. If your relationship with God was based upon how well you held on to Jesus every day, we wouldn't have a whole lot of confidence, would we? But thankfully, nothing can get in the way of Christ's love for us. It's because of this we're more than conquerors. See, this must change how we face our trials and our suffering and our difficulties. It must allow us to press on through it. We must not be insecure. We must not doubt God's love. And we must not run from our sufferings. And yet, many Christians are like some business leaders that I know, leaders who think that success in business is when they reach the point in which there is no drama or chaos or struggles. Most of you know, I think I was an entrepreneur at one point. I guess I still am, but I had a computer business. And I learned early on in my computer business that chaos will always be present. Vendors will miss ship. Computer systems will crash. New hires will become new fires. <laughs> Competitors will beat you to the punch. Lawsuits will arise. The chaos never goes away. And guess what, though, many business leaders think success looks like? Getting out of the chaos. Arriving at a point when things are easy. It's no wonder so many leaders live a frantic, insecure lives, barking out orders, stressing everybody out that they work with. But it's not just the leaders. It's the regular employees, too, carry the same mentality. Success looks like getting out of the chaos, not succeeding in it. Here's what I tell people. Embrace the chaos. Don't just expect it, but to expect to thrive in it. You are not a leader so you can lead your team out of chaos. You are a leader to lead them into chaos so that you can achieve victory in the midst of the chaos. When a leader finally understands that the chaos will never go away, when the leader embraces his or her role, it is then that the team or the company experiences satisfying victory in their work. See, it's inspiring to see a leader who's cool under fire. It tells you what? It tells you that that they know the hardship's real. They're not trying to downplay it. But it also shows us that they don't see themselves as the victims, but rather the victors. Leaders inspire us when they when they show us that they're not phased by the chaos, but rather they thrive in it. They inspire us to do the same, don't they? Now, so too Christians. In Christ, you have been called to live resurrected lives in the midst of the suffering of this life. Lives which embrace the chaos of this world. And as you and I stop running for cover and start living as glorious victors in the midst of chaos, guess what? This hurting world will take notice. See, Christ desires to conquer through us. And in doing so, he doesn't take us away from the fight. He leads us deep into it. So this... Embrace this life that Christ is calling you to live. Begin to see how his resurrected power works in you and through you to bear witness to others about the veracity of the cross. My friends, listen closely. How can we tell a hurting world that Christ embraces suffering and conquers through it if by our actions we avoid it? Grace Church, I'm asking you to take ownership of what we're studying here this morning. We are to see the trials of our life not as evidence that we've been separated from Christ's love, but rather that we've been called to conquer with Christ. When suffering comes our way, we're not victims. We are super conquerors through him who loves us. We conquer by trusting in his love, by believing that our our sufferings aren't robbing us, but rather they're taking us deeper into the love of God. So Christians, let the unbelievers around you set their hearts on the easy things in life. You've been called to a higher purpose. For God's glory and for the love of Christ, you and I are to embrace the chaos of this broken world as more than conquerors. Ask Christ, who dwells in you, to empower you to do this. Now, do you understand why earlier I said that until you experience this confidence that comes from God, you will always be insecure in other areas? See, the love of God gives you a confidence that that surpasses all earthly insecurities. If God is for us, Who can be against us? This inseparable love of God is is both personal and powerful. God is for us. He did not even spare His own Son for us. How can we begin to think He will be stingy towards us? Christ died for our guilt and shame. So we don't need to drink a shot of denial and chase it with a glass of positive thinking. We're to find our security in God and what He's done for us by His grace. May we also know that God's love, He's loved us with a powerful love, that nothing can separate us from it. That means when chaos and sufferings are present, we are to be super conquerors because Christ dwells in us. May this truth sink deep into our beings. May we delight in God's love. And may we rush back to the cross whenever insecurities seem to try to press their way into our lives. And may we live so that others experience the power of the cross in their lives too. May we be regarded as sheep for the slaughter so that others may experience the inseparable love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. It is unfathomable, but it's also true. May we meditate upon what we studied this morning. May we see that Jesus is at the right hand right now of of your throne, um, reflecting the glory that we're to be one day in the presence of all the angels. We're thankful that you are gracious to us. May our feeble minds be filled with this truth. May you empower us by your spirit to be super conquerors in a world full of sorrow, And may we love people so well. May we enter into the suffering of this world like our Savior has to bring redemption out of it. We pray. Amen.